Welcome to Launch Into Teaching with me, Julia Padgett. The second season of Launch Into Teaching is dedicated to what you need to consider when starting at a new school. I'll be speaking with new and early career teachers about their experiences of starting out and the lessons they learnt along the way. Plus, I'll share some thoughts on the little bumps in the road that might pop up during those first few terms and explain how you can overcome them. In today's episode, I'm going to elaborate a little bit more on those bumps in the road that I alluded to in my introduction. The reason why I refer to these as bumps in the road is because these are things that will present themselves in the first year of you being at a new school, whether you're beginning or an early career teacher, whether you're working in a primary or a secondary setting. Little Bumps in the Road Part 2 is going to have a slightly different focus from the first episode I recorded. Episode 1 of Little Bumps in the Road was more about you as a teacher and how you engage with your colleagues. Little Bumps in the Road Part 2 is more aimed at how you engage with students. The first point that I'm going to discuss uh, in today's episode is something that I'm hoping will help you avoid a little bump in the road. And that is understanding your school's policies. I know a lot of people hear the word policies and immediately think, oh, I'm not going to read them. When you start at a new school, though, the advantages of reading the school policies is that it helps you understand what the parameters are when you're dealing with a whole range of different um, issues. Now, schools will have heaps of policies and I'm going to identify a few that I think are the ones that I would be reading first if I was starting in a new school and irrespective of whether I'm working in a primary or a secondary setting. The first one I would probably go and try and find is the behavior management or the student pastoral care policy. They could be called something similar to that. This policy will set out uh, what the school's expectations are of how you manage a particular situation uh, relating to pastoral care or behavior management. Even though um, as a beginning or early career teacher, you may have um, your own set of strategies um, and tools and resources that you use. When you begin at a new school, it is important to make sure that from a consistency perspective, that what you're using also aligns with what is the overall management of behavior at that school. If the policy references a particular program that the school might use, it could be a behavior management approach, it could be a well-being program. If you haven't had professional development in that particular um, program, do speak up and request that you go off and get some training. It may not be able to happen, you know, in the first few weeks of you being at the school. You can certainly then go and utilize a mentor to, you know, understand how it works. And hopefully in due course, you'll be sent on some PL for it. But if there is a program that you haven't heard, do make sure you speak up and get some professional development. The other thing about the policies, which I think is quite helpful, um, certainly I did when I was a classroom teacher, is knowing what my role is in this policy. So it's an expectation perhaps for me to have tried multiple different strategies and techniques to engage those students or a particular student. I will document perhaps that somewhere on my learning management system, all the different things I've tried. Um, and then when it's becoming clear that what I'm doing isn't enough and there might be further support required for this student, that when I pass this on to a year level leader or a deputy principal or anyone in those key roles is I can explain to them what I've done. And then they obviously will step in at that point. 
The other policy, which I think is quite helpful to also have an awareness of, is um, an assessment and reporting policy. This is probably going to vary a little bit between our primary and the secondary setting, Um, maybe a little bit more relevant at a secondary level. It may include things such as, you know, what is the um, process if work is submitted late or if something has been submitted and it looks like it's been plagiarised. It's really funny, I find, sometimes in schools. When you ask someone, you'll be like, oh, this work's been handed in late. What's the policy? Um, Do I take off 10%? You can probably ask five different people and get five different responses. And I think that's because there's always an element of Chinese whispers at schools. Um, Initially, someone knew, and then over time, it, it changes. So as a new teacher to a school, I would always say, yep, for sure, talk to your colleagues, but also just go and check what's in the policy because sometimes it can be quite different. The last policy I think is that's worth looking at is the staff boundaries policy. This will look different between different school settings. So if you're moving from, say, the state system into the Catholic, Catholic into independent or any of those different combinations, just have a little read and see what it is that you're expected to uphold um, in terms of the professionalism that sits within that policy. I think as well as a beginning and early career teacher, it is helpful to know often these are derived from say things like the vit code of conduct but it's just really important as well that you know what that school um, has in terms of those professional boundaries things such as you know it may not be appropriate for you to tutor students at your school outside of hours it'll often contain things like this so i think if you're in doubt have a little read Um, it'll just help you to sort of understand the boundaries um, when you're working at that school Just to summarise my first little bump in the road and how to avoid it is do have a look at your staff um, and school policies. Hopefully these are sitting somewhere easy for you to access on somewhere internally, uh, might be a learning management system or a different platform. The three I've referenced are the pastoral care or a behaviour management policy. Then I've talked about the assessment and reporting policy and the last one being the staff boundaries policy. There's probably more you should be keeping an eye on. Um, And obviously over time, you do need to make sure you're familiar with them. The last, absolute last thing I'm going to say about policies is there might be some that are very specific to the subject you're teaching. What do I mean by that? So for example, there could be a policy if you're a PE teacher about hot weather and what the policy is around being outside at what point you actually stop taking physical activity with your classes. The same could apply to things like science. So just, again, if you're going into those domains, keep an eye out for subject-specific policies. The next bump in the road um, I'm going to talk about is duty of care. And I'm going to talk about duty of care through a range of different um, situations where, again, these little bumps in the road can all be avoided if you have prior knowledge of how to respond in each of these situations. So the first area of duty of care I want to talk about is something that every teacher is expected to do, and that is playground duty, whether that's before school, after school, throughout the day. Some of the things that I would be looking out for are knowing where you need to go and collect um, the first aid bag from if you're expected to carry that with you when you're out on duty knowing who to call um, when there is a serious um, accident out on the playground. And hopefully that's something that you never encounter. But I always feel that it's 
better to prepare for sort of the worst case scenario, you know, if a child falls and they can't be moved, uh, what is the chain of command? Is it that you send a student to the office with a card? Is it that you should have a walkie-talkie? Is it that you're expected to carry your mobile phone on you? Um, Just understand what that process looks like. Aside from medical emergencies when you're on playground, there are other things just to be obviously aware of and, again, know what the process is. Things like if there was an intruder on site, so someone coming on site who shouldn't be uh, there during break times. It may also be if you're in a rural school, it could be an animal. So it could be what do you do if there's an animal that comes on site? Um, The other one, of course, is, you know, how do you moderate students who become quite het up about a sports result? You know, if that results in a fight someone doesn't agree with a decision um, while they're playing footy or soccer or any of the other games, at what point are you expected to intervene? Again, what's the chain of command? Who do you call when there's a fight um, outside? And what your role is within each of those scenarios. The other part of duty of care, which um, you will certainly encounter in your first few years, is when you take students off-site. It might be that you're taking students off-site for a short period of time because you're coaching a sports team and they're competing at another school nearby. It may be that um, the class that you teach along with the other subject classes are off on an excursion, or it could be that as a whole year level, you're going off on camp. Whatever the activity is, when you go off site, obviously that triggers a different layer of planning and preparation. Hopefully you're at a school where you can work with a mentor teacher or an experienced work colleague who will guide you through what that process looks like at your school. But it will almost certainly trigger some kind of risk assessment um, for that particular activity. And these can be a little bit difficult to to work through the first time you do it, even the first few times, to be honest. Um, So I would work with someone to understand what you need to fulfill before you take students off site. Duty of care is just a fundamental part of being a teacher and whether you're on site or you're taking students off site, in this case, the little bumps in the road can be really reduced if you've got a full awareness of what you need to do um, in a range of different situations when um, things may not go quite right, but also understanding uh, what procedures you need to follow, especially when you're going off site to make sure that students and staff remain safe. The next little bump in the road I'm going to cover off is um, how you support students with a learner profile. This is almost certainly a whole season in itself, um, talking about students with different um, learner profiles. And what I mean by learner profiles is students that perhaps have cognitive, social, emotional, physical or sensory requirements that need to be met in, in the school environment. As a beginning and early career teacher, hopefully there is an area somewhere dedicated on a school learning management system or some kind of internal files that you can access, which will give you an overview of the particular profile of the students that you have in your classes. There could also be a learning support coordinator or a welfare coordinator that you can sit with and go through some of these profiles with um, because there's only so much you can read about on paper before you need to have a conversation with someone and say, how actually does this student present? And the most important part of all this as a teacher is that you are doing um, everything that you can to support that student to access education to the same level as their peers. 
depending on the needs of that student, they may also have um, access to different levels of support in the school. So it could be an educational support staff member works with them in class. It might be that they're withdrawn for um, small group intervention. It might be that there are external providers that come on site and work with that child as well. So it's really quite varied in terms of the level of support that might be offered for that child. One of the best things to do next is once you've read the file, you've spoken to somebody in a position of responsibility is see who taught that student the year before, go and have a conversation with them. There might be multiple teachers if it's a secondary school setting. Just understand from them what were some of the things that they noticed um, throughout the year that helped to support that student. But it also could um, give you further information about um, adjustments that might need to be made to that student um, to assessments, but it could also be modifications that might need to be made as well. I'm keeping this deliberately very vague because um, once I start giving specific examples around how you support a child with cognitive um, profile as opposed to a child that has a social emotional profile, uh, it suddenly becomes you know very specific and, and I don't want to be giving advice that is incorrect. What I'm outlining with this little bump in the road is just a very broad structure of how I would approach um, gaining information and initially supporting students with a learner profile in my classroom. From here, there will be almost certainly more documentation in the form of individual education plans where you identify goals for that student to work to work towards throughout the semester there could be a behavior management plan which outlines what happens if the behavior in the class escalates that will be done with someone else so that isn't something that you should be expected as a beginning and early career teacher to write it should be done in conjunction with um, someone in a position of responsibility at your school the final thing I'll say about supporting students with a learner profile and the way I think you can eliminate that little bump in the road is just again through acquiring knowledge in this instance, I really do feel the best form of professional development is speaking to your colleagues and understanding um, what they've done in the past to support that student because someone has spent a lot of time, um, possibly a little bit, a little bit of it trial and error, trying to work out how best to support that student in your school setting. So speak to them, um, speak to whoever you need to, to really understand what's worked in the past. I would also always encourage that you speak to the parents. And I think this is something that is really hard to do sometimes um, because as a beginning and early career teacher, you might feel like you're showing a little bit of vulnerability that you don't know enough about a particular learner profile diagnosis. And you shouldn't do because every child will present very differently and their parent will be the best ones to give you the information about what might be triggers um, things that they've done at home that they've found really beneficial. And yep, sometimes these translate into a classroom setting. Sometimes they don't. But I think always opening those lines of communication with parents um, at the very beginning is really important to build that trust in a relationship with a family. When you are working with students that have a learner profile, I've outlined a very broad overview of how I would go about finding out information about that student, starting with whatever's on file. That could be data. It could be reports. Speak with someone at the same time in a coordination role so they can help you unpack all that information that sits in the file. The next thing I would do then is go and speak to my colleagues, understand how this student's been supported in the past. I would also involve the parents, have a chat with them, understand um, and build that relationship with them from the beginning of the year. 
And the one thing that I definitely would encourage you to do is have a conversation with the student. Bring in student voice here. They will know what works for them and bringing them in as part of whether that's an individual education planning meeting, do bring them in, have a conversation with them, check in with them regularly. They'll be the ones that will really help you to ensure that you have a fantastic and successful year with them. This next little bump in the road is a little bit linked to the learner profiles um, and that is your VIT inquiry. So if you are listening to this and you are in Victoria, you need to complete your VIT inquiry in ideally the first two years of your teaching career. As part of your VIT inquiry, you do have to identify four learner profiles that you um, go into a little bit more detail about outlining um, what you need to do to support that student in your class. If you're a beginning teacher and you haven't done your VIT inquiry, whilst you're understanding about the different students' learner profiles in your classes, Keep a little bit of a note of who you might use for those learner profiles in the VIT inquiry. When you're a beginning teacher, it's all about working smarter, not harder. So you know you have to get the VIT inquiry done. Why don't you look at the group of students that you have in your class who have a learner profile? There might be some that have a similar profile. This might help inform which inquiry question you then devise with your mentor. Of all the little bumps in the road that I talk about in this season, the one that I think is the most avoidable but often becomes the most problematic and the biggest bump in the road for people is the VIT inquiry. And the reason I see that is because people put it off. They don't want to do it. They see it as something else that they just have to get done. They're trying to obviously get themselves established and everybody understands that. The VIT inquiry, though, is a really powerful way for you to self-reflect in your first year or your first two years as a teacher and understand what areas as a professional you still need to grow in. Schools will put in place time release in your first year out to help you to get your VIT inquiry done. If you choose to not do your inquiry in the first year, um, you might just want to check the school still offers some time release in the second year, may not be guaranteed. As I said, because the expectation is that you do it um, the first year you're out from having completed your degree. The other thing I would say about this is a lot of people leave it um, under the impression that the second year of teaching is going to be easier. That isn't often the case. Sometimes the second year can be not necessarily more difficult, but it can be um, challenging for other reasons. So don't be sort of lulled into a false sense of security that, you know, the first year is the hardest year. Second year might be hard as well. So my strong advice here is just get the thing done. I've seen lots of people put it off. It becomes a huge rush at the end. Then there's time pressures for staff to go in and have to observe people. The whole thing's avoided if you just do it in your first year out. So please remember that when you're doing your VIT inquiries, just try and get it done as quickly as you can. The last little bump in the road I'm going to talk about today is your engagement with parents. How you engage with parents and the different scenarios in which you're engaging with them is really a whole season in itself, which I will dedicate more episodes to in the future. But for today, I just want to talk about a few very preliminary um, ways that you might engage with parents and just give you a few little things that will help you hopefully avoid some little bumps in the road. Before you make any contact with um, 
the student's parents. Make sure you check on, again, a learning management system or some kind of file system who the person is that you should be contacting. The family could be uh, a split family. It could be that that student is an international student and therefore living with um, a relative, not necessarily the parents. So before you even initiate contact is just check to make sure who is the person you should be contacting. Probably more importantly, who is the person perhaps in some situation situations you shouldn't be contacting. And again, if in doubt, go and speak with someone first at the school and just make sure that you are talking to the right person. As a beginning and early career teacher, if you're having to make contact with um, a parent about a matter that you think, you know, might be a little bit sensitive, either organize for someone else to be with you when you're having that conversation. So that could just be, for example, that when you're having that meeting with that parent, if you're calling them in for a meeting, that you have another experienced teacher in the room with you. If you're making a phone call, I would put them on speakerphone and just explain that you've got someone else sitting with you for that phone call. If you're sending a communication to a parent via an email, always have someone proofread it. When you then speak with the parent in whichever setting or if it's an email, it's really important to have all your evidence, your information um, prepared in advance. So that could be that you've written down dot points. It might be that you've got um, work examples. It might be that you've got witness statements from other students. Just make sure that whatever it is that you're going to be engaging with them about, you've given time and consideration to before you start have that conversation. It might even be that you've rehearsed something that you're going to say to them. Just whatever it is that's going to make you feel at ease having that conversation, especially if it is, as I said, about something perhaps a little bit sensitive, is you might need to rehearse it. Um, Go through it. Make sure you feel prepared because when you're in a meeting, that's going to make you feel more confident. You're going to have evidence to point to. You can have dot points already um, there so that you can refer to them. And the more prepared and confident you are, the more you'll come across to those parents as being someone who knows what they're doing um, and is someone that they can place their trust in. The thing that I found probably the most valuable when I was a beginning and early career teacher, um, because I found this part of dealing with parents um, as someone who was only 22 when I first started teaching, I found it really challenging. Um, and I learned a lot from my colleagues who would allow me to sit in meetings and would take the lead on those meetings when talking to parents. And just by sitting there and observing things such as their body language, the tone of their voice, um, how they phrased certain things, I just was in awe of how capable um, and in control of these meetings um, and engagements with parents. And I just never felt that I was going to be able to do that. But it is amazing how quickly you pick up on those phrases and you start using them yourself. So where possible, I would really strongly advise that you go in and sit in some of those meetings, um, look at the communications they send, keep copies of them. um, So you can, again, use those as a bit of a template for when you might need to contact a parent. The final point I'm going to make about parent engagement is if you are aware that a particular student in your class has a family dynamic that has been noted, such as there could be court orders, um, they might be involved with external agencies. Um, As I said, it could be that they're a split family and there's very specific arrangements regarding that student is 
I would always go and have a conversation with someone in leadership before I sent anything to those particular families, just because these situations can be quite dynamic. Things can change quite quickly um, for a whole variety of reasons. And some of them you may not be aware of. So I think when dealing with those particular parents is I would just run it past someone in leadership just to make sure that, you know, you picking up the phone and, and ringing isn't going to make um, the situation worse or perhaps be, um, you know, not the right person to contact. Thanks for joining me today for Little Bumps in the Road Part 2. I hope you found the topics and discussion helpful as and when you come across each of these items. Hopefully you've gone ahead and prepared yourself uh, with a little bit of information in advance to help you smooth those bumps in the road. If you found this episode helpful, make sure you hit subscribe at Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts so you're the first to know when all my other episodes drop. The show notes can be found on my website, launchintoteaching.com.au. You'll find a link on my website to all my socials. I'd love to hear from you. And if there's anything else you'd like me to cover, do let me know. 